Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tim Moen Show. Thanks for joining me. Uh, today I have some, some, something a little special for you. Uh, I was approached by uh, a high school kid. He wanted to, he's anarcho-curious, let's say. He describes himself as socially conservative, he wants to find out a little bit more about anarcho-capitalism. He has a school project and he wants to uh, create an anarcho-capitalist party, political party for this school project and is super curious about what that would even look like. Sounds like he doesn't know a lot about it. I said, hey, why don't you jump on my podcast and we'll talk about this and maybe the guests will be educated as well and, and I could satisfy your answers, help you out with the project. A little mutual exchange. It's literal anarchy happening right here on the, on the podcast today. Um, so by the way, just so I preface this, it's he's uh, 17 years old. His name is Mike. Uh, his parents are okay with this. They're excited about him coming on this. I always check with that because, um, you know, we're we're trying to kind of undermine the government in a sort of way here. Uh, you know, not directly, not through any kind of violence or revolutionary action here. But uh, I always want to make sure we're okay with the parents. Anyways, uh, guys, welcome Mike on the podcast. Mike, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Good evening. I guess good afternoon for you. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, Appreciate no, I'm, I'm happy to. It was a, it was a, it was a win-win. Uh, listen, you uh, you reached out to me, and um, you. And by the way, audience, I'm I'm a fairly approachable guy. If any of you, uh, you know, have questions or ha suggestions for podcast guests, or think you'd be a great podcast guest, or whatever, please reach out to me. Uh, there's all sorts of channels. I'll respond to you. Respond to most people. Um, but Mike, you you kind of reached out to me. You said you had this project. You said, look, uh, I kind of identify as a SoCon, uh, but uh, you know, I want to develop this anarcho-capitalist party for my project. Why? Why anarcho-capitalist? I mean, you could have gone communist party. You could have done a, a green party. You could have done a, like a I don't know an AI techno technocracy party or a theocracy party. Like why why anarcho-capitalism? What what was it about that that uh, that kind of sparked your curiosity yeah so um i guess we just got the assignment and i didn't want to do anything that was already i guess here like libertarian party would be probably something i would create or another conservative party um but they're they all exist even a communist party and like socialist right. party all that or the one policy parties um they already all exist so i wanted to do something unique um so i thought to just like go for libertarianism but then like the extreme end of it and to right. see where that would bring me sure so, okay yeah <laughs> very cool and, and where yeah. what uh what was your i guess how have you been exposed or how do you even know the term anarcho-capitalism i guess <laughs> yeah i guess through just through uh memes on the internet uh yeah. interest in uh, i guess libertarianism in general yeah. um especially over the last couple of years um, and then seeing what like an anarcho-capitalist society would really be like has right. like sort of always interested me I sort of like thought it would work and then sometimes, you know, maybe it doesn't work maybe. And then yeah, just wanted to find more about it now for this project. So. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, so God bless memes, I guess. Right. I mean, they're, they're changing the world. Don't underestimate the memes. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm at your disposal. I, like I said, uh, you, you've got me for as basically as long as, as you need. Happy to answer your curiosity. Um, and we'll see, see if we can muddle through these questions. You sent me a, a list of questions and I just kind of briefly looked at them and go, yeah. oh, those are really good questions and could be very difficult to answer, challenging. <laughs> uh, but yeah. let, let's, uh, let's, let's give her. I, I'm at your disposal, sir. All right. Me, so, uh, questions. I guess my first question would be, what is anarcho-capitalism? 
what does it entail? Sure. Okay. Well, the basics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, so I, I think that anarcho-capitalism is kind of the the purest or most uh, consistent, uh, uh, I guess, with the libertarian principle. So libertarianism is essentially uh, founded on two things. One is the non-aggression principle, don't initiate force against people. And the second is property rights. Most people will agree shouldn't aggress against people. You shouldn't initiate force. Uh, but property rights are important because, you know, if you talk to, let's say, an anarcho-communist, they will say something like rent is theft. Okay. Now, most people agree you shouldn't initiate force against people while stealing from them is initiating force. So you can use force to defend yourself against theft, against assault, against rape, against murder. Um, but you can't use, use force to steal from people. You can't use force to rape people. You can't use force to assault people. Okay. So, 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 if an anarcho-communist says uh, that, that rent is theft, they're saying that violence is justified in protecting myself from that theft, right? And so they're, they, they are justified in seizing my house because they're, they're renting my house and rent is theft. My landlord won't stop stealing from me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep him off this property with force, off his own property. So you see why property rights are an important part of this. Because they, they say uh, who you can exclude from, uh, from something that's yourself or an extension of yourself. So you have a property right, in a sense, in yourself. That This is why rape, murder, assault, theft uh, are wrong. But it's you also have a property right in the things that you appropriate in nature or you acquire through, uh, you know, a contract or trade or something like that. That you know, I, all biological beings need to acquire things in nature in order to survive. They need to take in energy, food, shelter. Um, and so those are, are things that are, there, there can be disputes over, there can be conflict over. Um, and how do we resolve that conflict and the secret of civilization? And in fact, I think the secret to Western civilization and the reason why we have so much flourishing in the West while the rest of the world has been languishing has been the the idea that uh, of uh, the that the individual that society ought to be oriented around the protection of the individual, that the individual is a sacrosanct unit of society. Uh, so you know that this likely came out of Protestantism, uh, the, the idea that the divinity is located in the individual. In other words, it's up to the individual to to save himself. You can choose to choose to choose heaven or you can choose hell. The choice is yours. You're accountable. And from that, it's like, okay, if every person is an individual and sacrosanct and has their own agency, well, then that must be the the base unit of society that needs protection. And so, uh, you know, understanding who owns what is really important to figure out how to resolve conflicts and disputes and to, to create peace. Because if I understand that this house is mine and my neighbors understand that this house is mine, well, we're going to have be, it's going to be peaceful, right? Whereas if the neighbors think that, well, the house is whoever is the strong house belongs to whoever is the strongest and most forceful. Well, now we have nature red and tooth and claw. Now we have a survival of the strongest and the most brutal. And that is not civilization. That's the opposite of civilization. So property rights are very important to civilization. So libertarianism is based on don't initiate force and property rights. 
And uh, again, anarcho-capitalism is the thing that's most consistent with that. And and so uh, what anarcho-capitalists say is, look, you have this organization called the state, and the state is a group of people who uh, claim a monopoly on the the initiation of force within a geographical area, and um, you know they no no one in that area necessarily consented to it. Uh, they just kind of planted a flag and said that and that and everything you see here belongs to the queen. This is ours now, and you are our subjects. Okay, so it's rooted in conquest and plunder. It's established that way, and that's how it sustains itself. Um, so it, it's a it's a, an organization that has a geographical monopoly on force, and it can only it, it exists by initiating force. In other words, the only way it gets money is by uh, taxing people. And taxation is just another word for theft or extortion. It's violent extortion. It's even it's it's not. It's not even like, you know, there's some thieves that kind of sneak around behind your back and take your property when you're not looking. Then there's other thieves that come up to your face and say, give me your stuff or there's going to be consequences. Here's my gun. Know what I mean? And uh, that's the kind of theft that the state engages in. And that's how it it, it gets you, right? Um, now, the other thing that the state has that... So, so, so what I've just described is a criminal cartel. I think most people would agree, right? If you are stealing money from people, if you're locking them in cages for doing peaceful activity, if you're telling them what they can and can't do with their own property, like I, I'm not allowed to have baby walkers. I'm not allowed to sell baby walkers, right? That's they're illegal in Canada. I can't have lawn darts. I can't. <laughs> these are things that if I tried to sell them, someone with would send me a warning. If I ignored the warning, eventually guys with guns would come. If I said, no, I'm not following your compliant, uh, not complying with your orders. This is my property. And these are consenting adults and we're adults here. Well, they're, they're not going to say, okay, well, I guess we'll leave then. No, they're going to say, no, you will do what we say. And if I say, no, I won't do what you say. Eventually things are going to escalate and guns are going to be drawn. And if, if I try to defend myself, I'll be shot down. So th these are the actions of, of a criminal organization. These are the actions. These are things that a criminal do, does. And all, all we have to do is look at what would happen if you or I did anything that the state does. Okay. If I taxed my neighbor, what would that, be, what would I be charged with? I'd be charged with armed robbery. I'd be charged with extortion. Even if I called it taxation, I'd be charged with extortion because I'd be like, well, you did this thing in material reality and therefore it's, it's a crime. Okay. Well, how, how come you guys can do it? Um, what else? <laughs> if I uh, if I prohibited my neighbors from using baby walkers, you know, uh, that I'd be brandishing a weapon and uh, uttering threats, right? If I if I provided if I said I'm providing my neighbors my community with universal health care, what what does that look like? Well, that looks like first of all I'm going to have to rob all my neighbors, so I'll be violently extorting them. And then I'm going to, I'm going to say, but I'm telling them it's for a good cause though. Look, I need to take your money because uh, I'm worried that Jeff might get sick. All right. And you don't want Jeff to die. Do you give me your money? And they're, you're going to have to give it to me, even if you don't want it. Cause Jeff might get sick. Well, you don't care about Jeff. You're like, you're not worried about a sickness. Fuck you. Give me your money. You, you heartless fool. So I take the money. So that's my first crime. Then my next crime is that I tell people, uh, look, Jeff, you're sick. Oh, you got sick? Don't worry, I'll pay for it. But guess what? 
it's going to be the guy I choose. And only that guy can be a doctor. You can't be a doctor. You didn't meet my arbitrary standards. Only that guy did. So only he can be a doctor. So Jeff, that's the only guy you could go to. And by the way, it's going to be two years before you can, can see that doctor because he's pretty busy because he's the only doctor in this whole geographic area because I limit the supply of doctors. So how many crimes have I committed here as a private person? Yet the government does this and it's considered a great thing and, and a wonderful thing. So so that's that's the special nature of the state. It's it's literally if you look at it with through objective eyes, if you were an alien race that came here and looked at what we were doing, uh, you would see that it, that it is absolutely uh, morally inconsistent that on the one hand, these people get away with literal murder and theft and armed robbery. And on the other hand, the, these other people, the subjects, uh, aren't allowed to do any of those things. You say it's wrong, yet you, the people in charge do all those things, right? Um, so so the, the reason that the state is able to do all these things is because uh, people believe in, in the state. They, they believe it's legitimate. And this is why the state is different than any every other criminal gang, is that the majority of people, its citizens believe that it is a legitimate organization. So um, so those are kind of the, the characteristics of the state. And so what anarcho-capitalism says is, is just a, like, guys, let's the, the beginning of wisdom is calling things by their proper name. That's a Confucius quote. Um, <laughs> like, let's just call things what they are. Let's stop using this euphemistic language and dressing this up and saying that something magic is happening here. And when I do armed robbery as the government, I can call it taxation and it's a wonderful thing and pay your fair share. But when when uh, Mike does taxation as a private citizen, he's an armed bandit and a robber and must be in prison. Like what, what's the magic sauce here? And so, uh, you know, there's all sorts of justifications given for the state. There's, um, well, in, in the old days, it was the divine right of kings, right? Like the king would, and his, his priestly, and the priestly class would say, God put him there. He is literally the extension of God's will. And you are, uh, you know, shaking your fist at God if you deny the king his authority or something like that. Well, people kind of wised up to that. So they had to get a little bit more sophisticated. And, and you know, now it's the so social contract theory. It's, it's this idea that um, we need the state because there's this implicit social contract that you know, by virtue of you being born in this state's geography, well, you you have to help your citizens, Mike. You have to provide them health care. You have to pick up pick up the poor. But again, uh, it, it flies in the face of anything that has to do with a contract because a contract is a two way street. It's something that you enter into voluntarily. You're, it's a voluntarily obligation. But even if we assume that something like the social contract existed. Uh, you know, we would say, look, the very first thing that we owe each other is don't hurt people and take their stuff. So a government literally cannot exist if it's hurting people and taking its stuff. It's a government violates the very social contract you guys claim supports it. Um, you know, the next thing that people might say is, well, democracy, right? I mean, th this is an extension of the people. The people have voted for it. But let's look at democracy. Let's look at what's actually happening. If you or I uh, engaged in democracy on our own, Mike, we would be guilty of criminal conspiracy, right? Because what we would be doing is we would all be, be like, uh, conspiring together. We'd be like, okay. Um, you know, maybe you're on my side of the street, Mike. And you're like, you know what, let's get together 
and let's all vote to rob those people on the other side of the street and we'll we'll uh you know uh use that money to pay for good stuff for our side of the street right that's what voting is that's what democracy is it's criminal conspiracy that would be we, we would all be arrested because we'd be conspiring to commit a crime against our neighbors so so all these things are you know when you, when you think about them in clear with clear eyes outside of the matrix that we're we're taught to believe it is kind of ludicrous and ridiculous that the way we view this institution is kind of a, a legitimate thing so anarcho capitalism man i feel like i've i've gone on a bunch of side tangents <laughs> the original question i think was, what is an anarcho capitalism it, it, it's basically the the insistence on consistently following the non-aggression principle and respecting property rights. Okay. And, and you, we could get into, okay, how do you determine what's property and what's not your property and all those kinds of things. But that is it in, in its sense is that even we insist you, you follow the, the uh, non-initiation principle and don't violate property rights. And if you have a territory with people doing that, um, where they they don't have an institution, a, a criminal cartel controlling things and violating all those principles, then you have what you could describe as an anarcho-capitalist society. Um, so, I, I hope that kind of answers. <laughs> yeah, very fair enough. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so, how 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 can like a party like this and make sure that laws or like even like a, a society like this ensure that these laws or these principles are being followed by everyone and what are the consequences if they don't yeah well i mean look there, there's you know we're not utopians in other words we're not trying to envision a perfect society and create this perfect society like whatever society is like even if we reach a, a society that i would consider to be anarcho-capitalist uh you know there's going to be private crime in it there's still going to be there's still going to be cr criminal activity, right? The difference between private crime and public crime is that it's not uh, one giant leviathan that is supported by all the people and citizens doing the crime. People would actually look at it and say, yeah, that's a bad guy. Yeah, that's a bad guy. We got to do something about that. Um, so so it's not as if things would be perfect. And so there there would be a demand for things like law and order. There'd be a demand for things like roads, all the things that, that we love about, you know, the, the things that we enjoy that the state provides us um well i assume there would be a demand for a lot of these things you know we like roads we like fire departments we like uh police police departments in terms of um you know protecting us from crime and different things like that so it's it's you know i'd imagine that that demand entrepreneurs would rise up and meet it because they would want to provide value to people and they're self-interested and they would they would want to make it now the difference is that that these organizations would actually have to provide value to people. They'd actually have to do the things they advertise they're doing. They'd actually have to solve crimes. They'd actually have to protect people and their property. They'd actually have to put out fires and and have timely responses. They'd actually, they're, they're, they would actually have to have roads that don't kill 40,000 people a year and have potholes all the time and stuff like that. Because if, if you know, right now there's no obligation. I mean, you know, the police can, they don't have to provide any value. What's going to happen to them? Are they going to lose their jobs? No. And this is, and even in fire departments, you know, we, uh, you, you see a culture where we put safety first, right? Safety is, is everything. And that means that's, but that's not why you hired us as our, as the public. You didn't hire us to be safe 
you hired us to kick ass and like save your life and get after get after it and put it put a little be not afraid to risk some things to save property and life and different things like that so you know um yeah so so it's it's i don't know if I, i'm answering the question so then, then the question is okay well what would it look like and now we're going to start entering territory that is highly speculative okay because th this is like uh anarcho-capitalists kind of feel like abolitionists did 150 200 years ago so abolitionists said look they were a small cadre of people right maybe like a, a very small number of people were abolitionists slavery was just an institution that people took for granted 200 years ago like the state it was ubiquitous it was everywhere like everyone just assumed it's a normal part of life it's just part of the fabric of reality it's just like how would civilization operate without it all these things um and and so you know one of the thought experiments i like to do often is like 200 years from now what will future people be looking back at this time and saying you guys were nuts like we look back at, at slavery as nuts uh, i have a feeling that 200 years from now people will be looking back at our time and saying statism the states you had governments what you let criminal cartels run things you idiots um <laughs> But, you know, just like abolitionists back then, you know, they, they were met with all these, these, um, I guess, pushbacks, right? And, and, and they were asked, okay, look, you guys are saying that people shouldn't be owned. Okay, let's, let's say you're right. Maybe, maybe they are humans. Maybe these folks are humans. Maybe slaves are actual humans and they have rights, but be pragmatic here. What are these people going to do without slavery? I mean, are they going to be able to operate on their own without the plantation owner looking after them? These were legitimate concerns or arguments that, that anti-abolitionists had, that slavery apologists had, right? What, how are these slaves going to, going to even live? How are they going to operate? They, all they've ever known is slavery. They, they're, they are cut from a particular cloth that where they can't literally serve. They can literally not survive without a master. So they need a master to survive. They're completely dependent on this. So for their own good, don't you think we should keep slavery? Don't you care about these people? Uh, or they would say, look, how is the cotton going to get picked? I mean, we rely on cotton as a, a staple of our economy and you just want to take away all the cotton pickers. What? How's it going to get picked without slavery? Tell me that mister. And if I had said something like, well, look, uh, the cotton's going to get picked by entrepreneurs and people who form companies. And, you know, in the future, it's going to get picked by these giant machines that that do, you know, acres and acres every hour and basically spit T-shirts out the back end. Well, they would have looked at me like I'm crazy. Like, oh, you, you're nuts. You, you can't prove any of that stuff. And of course, they're right. I can't. Right. So. So, you know, when, when I talk to people about anarcho-capitalism, I like to be a little bit cautious about saying this is what it will look like because it would be like an abolitionist saying this is what the world will look like without slavery. The, the honest answer is we have no idea. All I know is that slavery is wrong. You don't own humans, mister. You don't own humans, Mike. That's it. Don't own them. And, uh, you know, let's, let's just hope that things work out without <laughs> human ownership. You know what I mean? And, and so I would say the same answer here about anarcho-capitalism. Let's just hope, you know, you, you don't own humans. You don't enslave them. You don't take half their income. You don't tell them they can't have baby walkers or lawn darts and can't put this or that in their body. And, you know, uh, <laughs> you can't draft them to go off and fight your wars. So, uh, 
you know, but, but let's see what society looks like. So, but I understand completely that, that people, this is a, this is a mental hurdle for people to get over, to understand it. And it wasn't actually until I heard, um, uh, an anarcho an anarchist philosopher talk about how things might work in a stateless society that I fully accepted it as, uh, okay, you've, I, I accepted the morality of it, but yeah, for me, again, they often say, you know, the, the, the difference between a libertarian and an anarcho-capitalist is six months, uh, because that it takes about six months for us to overcome our own mental hurdles and our emotional kind of resistance to accepting it. And one of the things that really helped me overcome it was understanding how things that I care about might actually work in a stateless society and have some hypothetical examples and just understanding some theoretical examples about how it might work uh, was helpful to me. So we're entering speculative territory here and I just want to put that out as a caveat. Uh, I don't know if this is going to, how it's going to work, but here are some potential ideas. So, okay. Uh, what, what was your first question about how is this going to work? Uh, how can we like ensure that laws are being followed? Right. Just like, and the criminals are being prosecuted. Sure. And not just like, the, what is it? The judges are being paid off by like big companies or people or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. Something like that. Right. Well, I, I mean, the first question, of course, to ask here is how can we ensure that now? Right. Because that sounds a lot like <laughs> what's happening right now. <laughs> you know, people, uh, it's, it's uh, what some people have described as the rise of anarcho tyranny right now, where it's, um, it's lawlessness. It's, uh, it's, government without law essentially well i, I don't like the term anarcho tyranny because that makes anarch anarchy look bad i prefer state enforced lawlessness so this looks like look you're going to be prohibited from having any kind of uh, uh private law enforcement or security measures or justice or and, and you're going to be prohibited from owning public spaces like roads parks cities and uh we're not going to enforce any laws at the same time. Right. Uh, so, so it's like the, the worst of both worlds. It's like, look, the reason I have a, a house and the reason I like my property is because, you know, my wife and I can set the rules on this property. We can say who comes on, who can't come in. We can say what your rules of conduct are in my house. And if you violate those rules of conduct, like if you sit at my kitchen table and insult my wife or family, you're gone, mister. Like I'm punting you out of the house. So that's, the rule of law in Tim's house. And I'm justified in using force to kick you off my property. It's the minute you become a trespasser and violate those rules. So I suspect something similar would happen in an anarcho-capitalist society. So you, you, you might have, let's say you have a, a private city, right? Here's how a private city might emerge. You go out into nature, you're a developer, and you're like, here's how I'm going to make some money. I'm going to develop a nice community that people are going to want to live in. They're going to pay me money to maintain it. They're going to pay for these lots because people want to live in a community where they're dependent on each other and, and, and they're close to each other. They don't, most people don't want to live as isolated hermits in the wood. So, uh, so I'm going to create these subdivisions. I'm going to build roads. I'm going to put in sewer systems, uh, water systems, electricity, all these things that they're going to want. They're going to buy property here. And when they buy property, uh, there's going to be a contract they have with me. I'm going to agree to maintain their roads. I'm going to agree to maintain all the infrastructure at, because I own all the infrastructure. So essentially as the developer, I'm the city owner, right? I own the, the infrastructure of the city. Um, you own that lot. And here's what that means. 
Okay. You have to abide by the rules that are in this city. You have to maybe have certain architectural controls on your house. Like I don't want a little shanty next to a mansion, for example. People won't want to buy property here if that's the case. So I'm going to have all sorts of rules that are going to attract people, right? The difference here is that my rules are designed to attract customers, customers that want to live in a nice community. So I'm going to try to imagine as an entrepreneur, what kind of community customers are going to want to live in, what kind of rules they're going to want to have in that community. On the flip side, what if I don't live up to my end of the bargain? What if I'm not maintaining the streets? What if I'm not, say, providing a fire department or a police department? Or a, or what if what if uh, my police department violates uh, what they're supposed to do, which is protect individuals instead of like beating them up and killing them and robbing them and like being corrupt and stuff, right? Well, there's going to be repercussions on my half. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to face justice as the city owner. Uh, what if the garbage truck doesn't come when it's when you promised it would come when you agreed to in the contract that it would come. So there would be these contracts drawn up that would be very explicit. And these, I guess we could call them like social contracts almost, right? <laughs> but they're actual social contracts because we're both agreeing to a very clear set of guidelines and obligations. Listen, if I live in a community, there are going to be some obligations on my part. I have to give to the community. Like I, who, the, the roads have to be maintained. So I'm voluntarily parting with this money. I know what the sum's going to be. I know how that sum is figured out. And I agree to it when I, when I do that. And I do it contractually. And then if the city doesn't live up to its end of the bargain, if it starts slipping, I have this contract that I can take to a judge and say, hey, the city's violating its contract and I can get immediate access to justice. Now, notice how that's different than what happens in cities right now if the garbage isn't picked up. What happens if the garbage isn't picked up on time now and it becomes a regular occurrence? I could complain, I guess. I can go on the news and say, hey, the garbage isn't being picked up. I can try to start a petition. Uh, you know, Maybe I can run for council and, and start a political movement and hope to create change in, in a four-year political cycle and maybe the garbage will get picked up. But that that is a lot of time, energy, and work for something that the city is just automatically supposed to do by contract in, in my private anarcho-capitalist city. So I suspect there would be these explicit contracts drawn up. And actually, I have a friend right now who is doing something like this in Saskatchewan. He bought 500 acres of farmland. He's going to, um, he, he's selling the farmland uh, one square foot at a time uh, to people. So you can go there and buy a hundred square feet if you want. You can buy 10,000 square feet uh, like if you, if you want to buy a hundred square feet, you could put a tent on it. If you want, want to buy 10,000 square feet, you could put a mansion on it. Uh, whatever you want to do, uh, the title to each square foot is um, given to you by NFT. So a non-fungible token, it's a blockchain technology. Most people think of the, the scams with artwork when they think of NFTs, but it's actually just, it's just a way of ensuring traceable ownership essentially it's in uh, you know a deed that can't be messed with and and so um so he he wants to create a private municipality he thinks he can do this create a space basically an, an anarcho-capitalist community and he's going to have private fire department private police or security um you know private infrastructure he, there's going to be a rule set but um, you know, the, the community is for liberty minded people. So the rules are going to be fairly, uh, fairly lenient and, and different things like that. But these are people that are going to enter into a contract and there's going to, you know, all those kinds of things. Right. So there's going to be immediate access to justice if he doesn't 
live up to hands end of the bargain. So these are things that are, are actually happening right now. There are private cities right now all over the place. Now, an, another thing that, that could happen is, so imagine, so, so we're talking about criminality and how would we deal with criminals and how do we ensure criminals are, are dealt with, right? Um, most property, most land or territory is going to be privately owned. Now, as a private owner, you don't want criminals on your property. You don't even want you don't even really want untrustworthy people on your property, right? People that, you know, um, haven't been vetted or something like that. Um, but different people are going to have different rules. You're going to be more open. Some are going to be less open. Um, but uh, one of the things you're going to want as private individuals is some sort of dispute resolution mechanism. So if I go to a grocery store and there's a dispute about whether I took something or not, well, it's in the best interest of the grocer and me, or maybe he accuses me falsely, or maybe I actually do take something and he has a legitimate claim. Either way, we're both going to want some kind of insurance that this dispute is going to be solved without us coming to blows and pulling out guns and, and resorting to private violence or something like that. And so you could, you could see that there's this need right out there. Right. And what is the first law of entrepreneurship? It's like, you see a need, you see uh, a demand out there and you rise to meet that demand because you can make money doing it and it's in your self-interest to do it. And so, um, so one uh, philosopher I read, uh, Stefan Molyneux uh, in his book, Practical Anarchy, which is a good resource you might want to look at. Uh, I'll send you the link later. Uh, he talks about something called dispute resolution organizations that would emerge. So, uh, so you know, everyone would likely, in order to operate in a civil society, likely to need to have some insurance or coverage by a dispute resolution organization. I'd pay a subscription fee to these guys, and they would they would uh, resolve disputes. They would it would be in their interest to make sure justice is served. Let's say, okay, and what does justice look like? Well. There's a market here for what what the best form of justice would look like that might look similar to something that we saw in in like the England uh, with the common law system where you had judges roaming around resolving disputes between two peoples who felt aggrieved. Like there, there's one person who claimed to be a victim and then there was the you know, there's a plaintiff and an, an accuser. And uh, and so they would what they would do in common law England is. There was no legislative law. There was no giant law book that said, these are the rules of the land. And your job as a judge is to read the rules and see if those people are following or are violating the rules and compare their behavior to these rules that some politicians or the king wrote down and see if they've committed a crime or not. No, what the judges would do is they would look at the dispute. They would look at, they would look for principles of justice. They would, they would search for justice in this thing. And quite often they would look at previous cases that other judges had ruled on to see what they did and what their reasoning was. And so over time, what you would get is this, this, this um, compendium of case law built up where, where justice would emerge and things and, and rules would kind of emerge from it. Right. So for example, there, there's this maximum self-defense that says you're allowed to use as much force as necessary but no more to stop a crime or, or to defend yourself, right? So in other words, uh, if someone breaks into my house, I can chase them off my property, but as they're running down the street, I can't shoot them in the back. That's going too far, right? So I can use, I can shoot them on my property if, if my life's in danger and if I need to, to protect myself from my property, 
Um, but so, so if someone gets shot in the commission of a crime or something like that, and, and they charge me with violence or, uh, assault or, or murder or something like that. Well, now I have to sit before this common law judge and he's going to ask, he's going to ask a bunch of questions. The lawyers are going to argue and they're going to try to figure out, did I use as much force as necessary to defend myself and no more, or did I go over the line? And they're going to, and so they're going to figure out based on all the details and the context where the, where justice is. Right. And over time, as more case law builds up and we have more and more circumstances as of people trying to figure out where that line of justice is, um, we get a clearer, more concise idea of what's just and unjust. And so it would be something like that. So you'd have these dispute resolution organizations trying to resolve these disputes. The ones that that were really good and fair and just in their decisions, they were impartial. They weren't favoring one side or the other. Those are the ones that would make the most money, right? Because no one would hire a dispute resolution company that is biased, uh, that, that would... Um, you know, only always come down on one side. Uh, they they would want something that's impartial. So so you would have these people. So you would have people going in and out of engaging in relationships. Everything that goes on in a city, they'd all be covered by dispute resolution organizations. There might be different ones, um, and you know the different. Just like different companies have, you know, for example, cell services figure out a way to communicate with each other. These dispute resolution organizations would figure things out and they'd figure out how to resolve disputes and they'd try to do it in the most economic way possible, most efficient, fastest. You, you, when you have justice, you don't want to be languishing in courts for two, three, four, five years, right? You, you want quick access. And, and one of the things that you might get, one of the ways justice might be different, for example, is that it would actually focus on the victim. So the criminal, uh, if found guilty, would likely be required to restore the victim to um, to wholeness again, right? If you robbed from me, you need to like repay me and repair the damage you've done psychologically. And maybe my business had to shut down for a while and you'd have to do that. And so justice would be focused on what can that criminal do to repair the damage he's done rather than simply uh, taking that criminal, locking him in a cage and for a, an arbitrary period of time, making everyone else pay for it, giving him three square meals a day, teaching him how to become a better criminal when he gets out, it would actually be restorative, not just for the victim, but it would be for the criminal because now he's got an avenue for redemption. Uh, again, speculation, but I suspect this would be a better form of justice because now you've got a rehabilitated member of society who's figured out how to provide value. It's done by court order. Now, what would be the consequences of not agreeing to do that court order? Uh, or, or that uh, that sentence. Okay, again, it's an anarcho anarchist community. Like, what's what's you know? Well, this guy would be brought to the edge of <laughs> private property where private property ends, and said, "Look, you're not welcome on anyone's private property. No one wants you. We now have a red flag on you, and and because there's a red flag on you, anytime you try to use a road, anytime you try to to access a park or go into a store." you're going to be identified very easily. Uh, people know you you are a criminal who is unrepentant, who doesn't want uh, to redeem himself. So guess what? You're going to have to live out in the hinterlands, in Never Neverland, until you know you agree to uh, submit to justice. And, and so it would more likely be a thing of keeping them out of civilized society rather than locking them in a cage for a, a period of time 
because that seems like a more economically viable thing rather than, you know, uh, forcing people to pay for them to, to stay in a cage or something like that. Now, you know, maybe it's a serious crime and, and we can't trust them even out there. Okay. There's certainly probably going to be cages. You, you know, if you have a tiger, you, you lock it down, right? You put it in a cage. If it's a dangerous person, no problem. We'll, we'll lock them up. Um, or maybe even if they committed a semi-serious crime, we bring them back and we're, we're like, okay, you're going to have to submit to this institution. You, you are going to be confined to this institution and we're going to slowly reintegrate you into society and you're going to be heavily watched. And here's your avenue for redemption. You're going to have to repair the damage you've done, but you're also going to have to report back and we need to keep eyes on you in this jail, so to speak. Uh, but again, here we have like, what, what are you going to do if you, if you've stolen something or if you've done wrong, if you've committed a crime, are you going to live in the wilderness the rest of your life? Or are you going to try to redeem yourself and get back into society? Well, I'm probably going to try to redeem myself. So I'm probably going to submit to being confined to this penitentiary or whatever, and figure out a way to, to restore my good name and be a contributing member to society again. So that's something how, how it might look, um, you know, and again, you have an armed society guns aren't prohibited um you you have uh people uh proficient in in defending people and having livelihoods literally dependent on on protecting clients from crime and so if they don't protect clients from crime and word gets out they're going to lose their livelihood so the incentive structure here is very different than what we have today with police which is i'm going to get a wage regardless so you know, I'm going to maybe hang back a little bit, let things shake out until, you know, no, you're, you're going to be very motivated to ensure you don't go bankrupt and you're going to take a few risks with your life, just like a firefighter would to make sure property is saved because I gave those customers a guarantee that I'm going to save their property. So um, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I hope it kind of gives you some <laughs> sense of how it might work, right? Again, wild speculation here, but th this is kind of the... the um, reading and the thinking that helped me kind of cross the gap of okay you know because i was kind of stuck on well how would criminal justice work how would police work i mean that seems like it should be as like how, how can it work without a government right but yeah so um let's say it's in my best interest to like uh, let's say i have a lot of money it's in my best interest yep. to pay off a judge pay off and and they would probably take the money if it's a lot of money yeah because that would serve their interests as well. Sure. So would that not just lead to a ton of corruption within the Right, right. Society? Yeah. And again, I, I'll before I answer, I'll bring it back to um, what about the system now stops that from happening, right? We, we know judges get paid off all the time. We know this happens all the time, right? So I just need to point that out, <laughs> okay. that, that nothing about the government stops that from happening either, right? Absolutely nothing prevents that from happening. It's happening. It's rampant. We know this is happening. <laughs> And it's likely to be much better in an in anarcho-capitalist society because those judges, uh, their livelihood their, relies on their good name. And they're, so, so man, if, if we're competing for justice services, let's say, uh, I'm going to be watching other judges for corruption. And if there's any sign of corruption, that's going to be part of my ad campaign, isn't it? And they're, they're going to be ruined very quickly if there's any perception. And there might be might be things put into, uh, like insurance policies put into place, because this is something, likely something that people would be very concerned about, right? So if, if I were 
a judge or a dispute resolution organization. And I wanted to assure my customers that I'm going to be impartial, that I'm not going to be bought off, that I can't be bribed, all these different things. One thing I might do to satisfy my customers is say, look, I'm going to put a substantial amount of money, enough to bankrupt me in escrow, in a third-party neutral account that we all agree is controlled by someone else. And if anyone ever finds any perception even that I'm uh, I'm not who I claim to be, uh, well, I'm going to be ruined and I'm going to have to do this or that, right? Or maybe maybe I'll agree to a contract with, like with my clients that if any corruption is found out, I have to move out of, I'll have a red flag on my account. Uh, I will be banished from society. You know, I'll have to submit to justice, all these other things. Right. So, uh, so I actually think that, that this problem, the problem of corrupt judges gets dealt with in a much more effective way in an anarcho capitalist society than it does in our current society, where it's a completely corrupt system. I mean, not only are judges bought off, but they're they're captured ideologically, right? I mean, judges now are are um, groomed and appointed from leftist universities that uh, are all engrossed with this woke stuff. And, and you know, uh, just to give you an example, our law as well, like family law, is has been infused with this kind of feminist ideology of um, like child custody goes in a divorce goes to um, the most equipped parent or something like that, rather than, and what it should be is, um, and, and of course the most equipped parent is almost always the mom because they're the ones that are biologically wired to stay home with them and do this thing. So this ends up in, you know, father alienation, uh, fathers get pushed out of the kids' lives. They have, they become objects of resource objects, like a wallet for, mom and, and child and they get alienated from the child. The kid gets alienated from their father more importantly, and doesn't have that father figure in their life because dad now has to work two or three jobs and different things like that. This all comes from this, fem this ideological capture of the family courts. It's, and instead what the court should be looking at is, okay, what, what is in the best interest of the child so that they can have access to both loving parents in a, in a fair manner. That should be the underlying question, but it's, that's not the question. It's like, who should the primary caregiver be? Who should be the primary thing, right? And so that all, always, almost always skews towards the mom. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it skews towards the dad. And, but but and, and then mom's alienated. But you know, nine times out of ten, dad's alienated from. And so well, we have an epidemic of fatherlessness, right? So um, so so judges right now uh, are are ideologically captured. They're they're corrupt. They're influenced by the political system. Of course they are. It's a monopoly and they're appointed by politicians, a lot of them. And, and the, the rules are set up by politicians, by legislatures. And, um, you know, and, and so it, it's completely corrupt. It's completely corrupt. And, and so an anarcho-capitalist society would not tolerate any of this. Our, our job is to resolve disputes. I mean, these are lives that are hanging in the balance. These are people that have literally legitimately been harmed or falsely accused or whatever. And these issues need to be thought through seriously. And the decision has to be correct. Justice has to be served. And if it's not served, man, uh, the people who are responsible for that should, should suffer the consequences, right? And, and not just continue 
getting promoted and getting higher judgeships and and go on, which is what happens now. So, yeah, fair enough. Okay, that, that's a pretty good answer. Um, moving on to like the international stage, how would a society like this even compete on like, yeah, in the international stage and international organizations, NATO, the UN, stuff like that? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, it likely wouldn't be part of any of these organizations because there's no government, right? There's, I mean, who would, who would enter? Like, I guess I could become a member of NATO or the UN if they would have me. Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm Tim. Hey, you guys want to be allies? <laughs> like, sure, there would be no prohibitions, I guess, unless, well, there might be prohibitions. Let's not, let, let's stop because NATO has been guilty of some pretty bad crimes over the years. And so is the UN. Uh, I mean, let's go through Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, the bombing of Libya, reducing it to a slave. Like if I were a part of that organization, some of my neighbors might have some questions about me and, and not really trust me to be be part of the community or something like that. But um, uh, sorry, the question was, how would you be international affairs? So, and the other thing to understand is quite often, and this just is highlights kind of how ingrained in us this matrix is of language we use right like we talk about government like it's a thing and not just a non-corporeal entity um you know look it, it it's it's almost like a it, it is a religion it's like the state is a non-corporeal entity it, it's 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 no coincidence that atheists um well you know when they lose their belief in god they adopt a belief in another non-corporeal entity that they petition for every problem they see in the world. They send their, their fervent prayers to the state. They sing hymns of praise to the state in forms of, of uh, 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 national anthems. They worship the, the, the religious artifacts of the flag and the parliament and the Capitol building. Oh my God, you, you defiled our sacrosanct thing. You know, like every, there's pictures of the dear leader on all the school's wall. We sing pledges to the, it's like, it's, it's creepy how cultish the state is. Um, and, and we learned this from, you know, K to 12 in government school. I, I imagine that, right. I, by the way, you're, I, I, I'm worried your, your assignment might be, might not be super popular in government school. It might have some pushback. So you're gonna have to be kind of careful how you word this stuff, but, um, but, uh, Okay, so, sorry. What was the question? Again? <laughs> You're good. You're good. Just how, uh, like, a, like, a society like this would compete on like international. Oh, right, right. Okay, yeah. Basics. So, so, quite often the language we use is like Canada is in a trade deficit with China, or Canada and and its trade with Mexico, and blah blah blah. Well, Canada doesn't trade. The Canada is either a piece of land or a non-corporeal entity that that doesn't exist right it's like how does can in what way does canada do any trading no it's individuals and it, and the companies they own that are doing the trading that are doing the commerce right and so um so there there's obviously going to be no prohibitions on imports and exports like who would do that that would be a a, a violation that would be criminal that would be criminal activity so if i want to trade with someone in china i mean as long as their criminal cartel lets them trade with me We'll trade, right? Um, and, and vice versa. So, so you know, we don't need that. There doesn't need to be a, a government to engage in, in international trade and diplomacy. And in fact, because there's so much trading going on, we know historically that armies typically don't follow trade routes, right? If you have trade with a peaceful territory, um, 
you're not going to invade that territory because you you're you're made better off by trade with it and so uh you're it, it's highly unlikely so that it would be invaded for one thing and then if it was invaded like that there there would be no incentive to there's no infrastructure to take over usually when you invade a country what you're trying to do is get at the seat of power get at the seat of government so that you can take over its tax uh infrastructure and its plunder infrastructure and and take all that plunder for yourself well there's no plunder infrastructure you would literally have to take one farm at one piece of property at a time and you would be met with a gun behind every boulder and not just like a pea shooter either you would have guys with machine guns and tanks and heavy artillery and like everything you could think of because this is an anarcho-capistan man this is like <laughs> like the, the most powerful military in the world the u.s army couldn't take over afghanistan and they're a bunch of sheep herders with ak-47s right they're defending their territory like, you know, what kind of success are they going to have with a highly civilized, highly wealthy, uh, highly armed, highly organized uh, <laughs> uh, territory of people that um, that don't want to be invaded and that love freedom so much that they literally punted government out and made government illegal, <laughs> right? I mean, good luck trying to invade that. You're much better off trading with us. We'll trade with you all day long. You'll be better off. We'll be better off. We'll make you rich. Uh, you'll make us rich. Like, why wouldn't you want that, <laughs> right? Fair enough. Does this mean that nukes are like legal too? Well, okay, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I struggled with this one. I actually wrote a, um, I wrote a, an article on this years ago um, about how, how, how nukes might work, right? Because again, it's just a piece of property, right? But the the difference with nukes is that they are they're they're not just a, a defensive weapon right there's a couple exceptions that i'll get into but they're a weapon of offense in other words they kill innocents and so they can't not kill innocents right um now would you maybe you would have maybe you could make a case that a tactical nuke would be worthwhile to have in case an army was rolling in you can nuke the army or something like that but let's say let's say a, a, a defense organization, uh, of which there would be competing defense organizations, uh, said, "You know what? We we're going to own we're going to own a nuke." Well, as a customer, I'd have some serious concerns, right? Because what are you going to do with that nuke? Like, how do I? How can I be ensured innocent people won't be killed? How can I be ensured you won't turn that thing on me? It's a pretty powerful piece. So I'm going to insist on a lot of uh, safeguards before I'm going to, you're going to get my money and get enough money to develop a nuke or own one or something like that. And the safeguards that in play that are going to be put in place include like multiple watchdogs watching you regularly, auditing you an embedded watchdog, maybe even that, um, answers to another party that I trust that has nothing to, you know, like I'm going to think of all the safeguards and I'm going to want those in place as your customer. And you're going to have to provide them or you're not going to get my money. Um, and and those safeguards are going to be so like draconian and restrictive that it might it, it's all it's not even going to be worth your time. It's going to cost you so much to meet all those restrictions that you know you're going to just say, look, we'll figure out another way to defend you know, that doesn't have to do with nukes. Now, you might have a, a madman or a, a, a brilliant madman like Elon Musk say, look, I'm going to we, we're going to face asteroid uh, 
destruction or something like that, right? Or or there are the, all these meteors out there, and one day we might have something, and we need to uh, we're going to need some nukes to defend ourselves from from uh, planetary destruction or something. Okay, that's a legitimate use for a nuke. That's a defensive use. Um, again, let's go back to the idea that uh, having it in the hands of government, a literal criminal cartel, doesn't necessarily make the nuke safer, nuclear ownership safer, right? In fact, it, it was government that actually used it at one time, right? The U.S. government dropped a nuke. It wasn't a private organization. It wasn't Walmart or a security <laughs> company that did it. It was a government that did it. And it, you know, so, so the, the government is the one that has dropped me. So but let's put that aside because we're trying to figure out, we're trying to put on our ANCAP hats and figure out how we would solve this issue of people owning nukes. And, and so again, I might want, I might like that idea. Okay. Yes. I'll pay for, for planetary defense. I don't want myself or my, my, you know, descendants to be wiped out. Like maybe I'm even thinking long-term. I'm like, you know what, let's, let's pay for some kind of planetary defense because I'm, I'm thinking about my lineage and not having them wiped out. Um, again, those nukes better be always pointed at space. Uh, and there better be some really clear safeguards that are transparent that we can all see about how that that's being dealt with. And, you know, there, there's going to have to be a lot of due diligence on Elon's part before uh, he's going to be allowed to own those. And, and by allowed, I mean, look, if, if he doesn't meet those safeguards and there's a credible threat to us, we could use protective force and seize those assets and destroy them. And, and you know, that, that's, I think, a legitimate thing to do. So, um, you know, these are all tricky questions, uh, and again, but, uh, but it, it's challenging. And a lot of this thing stuff is actually an interesting thought experiment because it, it forces us to get out of this mindset we have of the status mindset, right? And the status mindset is like, I don't like this problem. The government should do something about it as if the government can just magically do something about it, right? As if it's going to, and, and as if by saying it's going to do something, it's going to do something. And there's not going to be all sorts of negative unintended consequences. Now we actually have to figure out, okay, if we're not going to point guns at people and issue threats and threaten to murder them, how can we solve this problem without doing that, without threatening to murder people and initiate force against them? Um, can we? And it turns out that, yeah, we can. We can for most problems, uh, you know, if we think about it long and hard enough. Fair. Fair enough. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, the environment. Big, oh. big topic. Um, yeah. How can we ensure that companies, even if it's like in the interest of the people, to protect the environment or do something about it, not overuse, I guess, whatever, whatever you right, right. make up. Um, sure. How can we ensure that companies don't just abuse, I guess, abuse the environment or overuse something or right. like anything like that? Right. And, and you know, I'll, I'll start with, uh, of course, the, the first question I always ask at these questions, how's the government doing at that? How's <laughs> how's it solving that problem, right? Um, <laughs> what, what about a criminal cartel makes it more uh more adept at dealing with the environmental issues okay so let's start with that question but now we'll move on to okay putting our thinking caps on and trying to figure out how to do this without pointing guns and killing people and robbing them and doing all sorts of other nasty things um <laughs> so so there, there's first of all 
a lot of territory is going to be privately owned. Now, if you've ever owned private property or owned a house, you know that you take much better care of it than you do a house that you're given to to live in for free or that maybe even you're renting or something like that. You're very meticulous about keeping up the environment. Um, I, I lived in Fort McMurray for years. And, and of course, the oil sands are uh, a contentious issue on the environmental front. And there are some legitimate gripes against the oil sands. You know, they, uh, they are, a lot of pollutants have leached into the river and been polluted, polluted uh, First Nations communities downstream and different things like that. You know, uh, one of the, the suggestions, one of the problems, of course, uh, how this happens is that there, there aren't property rights assigned here. There, there aren't property rights recognized. And so, uh, you know, the First Nations communities up there are, they essentially own that territory. Like th there's no one else that can lay a claim to it. These people have been interacting with that, that land for, for centuries. They've hunted, they've gathered with it. They've done everything to appropriate that land. Now, as a community, should individuals have property rights? Yes. Uh, but certainly an oil company doesn't have a claim on that land. The government doesn't have a claim on that land. Those individuals that live there and interact with it have the highest claim on that land. And so, um, so these oil companies, so, so what would I do if I were the property owner of this tract of land that had a very rich resource under it, right? That, and I know that it could be environmentally devastating and there's lots of stuff down there that I don't want in my children's drinking water. And, and I also love nature and I love the wilderness and I, and it's been in my, you know, my ancestors, my descendants, I want to preserve this stuff. Right. But I also want to be rich as a Saudi sheik at the same time. So now I have to figure out, okay, what do I want to do? I want the best of both worlds and I think I can have it. And here's how I would do it. I would say, okay, oil company, I'm going to allow you to come in here and take a segment of my land, a, a chunk of it, you know, maybe like 5% of it. You can extract all the oil out of that you want. Um, but I'm going to require you to return it to a pristine state of nature and reclaim that land and prove to me that there's no environmental, there's no pollution, there's none of this, blah, blah, blah. We're going to have monitors set up. You're going to pay for that. And, and once I'm, I'm comfortable that you've reclaimed that land and restored it to a pristine state of nature, I'll allow you to go to the next block of land and do the same thing. And to make sure as an insurance that, 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 you do what you say you're going to do. I'm going to require you to put a large sum of money, let's say $3 billion into escrow that is there for a rainy day. And that way, if you violate your contract and I see any pollutants, if you don't reclaim the land, if you don't do what you say we're going to do, contracts terminated, you're out on your ass. And I'm going to use that money to restore the, the land to what it was. And then we're going to look at a different client or something like that. That's how I would do it. But that's not what is done right now under government. Okay. What's done now under government is... They do kind of a uh, like a, a virtue signaling, superficial engagement session with the First Nations people there that own that land, by my um, estimation, and they say, "Okay, like let's let's engage." And of course, they do it with corrupt chiefs that they pay off and different things like that, and get sidekicks from, and and they go in there and they basically rape the land and, you know, pollute it and do different things. And there, look, there's a lot of great things that come out of the oil sands and those first nations people actually do end off, uh, end up a lot better off because they're, if you look at any metric of human flourishing on those, in those communities, they're much higher than 
most other first Na any other first nation communities because of the contracts they get and the, and the economic thing but it could be done a lot 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 better and it would be done a lot lot better if they had private ownership if they um were uh private owners of that land so so that's one way so private ownership actually creates better uh environment a better environment is more environmentally friendly than just collective proper uh, ownership um so so that's the first thing so then the next thing is okay what if there is environmental degradation well we know throughout history um in common law for example we we have uh, case law and we have an example of how uh environmental pollution problems were solved so um, if you had a community and then a factory popped up and a bunch of smoke from the, and, and pollutants from that factory started falling on these houses, well, they could very easily be traced to that factory. They would go to a common law judge and say, hey, uh, there's damages happening here. This needs to be remedied. And there would be fines and different things paid out. There'd be court orders of you need to build higher smokestacks. You need to re remediate this and make sure it doesn't continue happening. We need to get some agreement. And so... Uh, pollution gets cleaned up. It gets better over time because of the justice system, because it's because pollution and environmental degradation is a property rights issue. And so it gets resolved through property rights. Now we could take this even a step further and talk about global warming and, and say, let's say that CO2 uh, we believe is, is causing environmental damage. Okay. Now what happens right now? with that while we're told okay we need to save the environment so here's how we're gonna create justice climate justice okay we're gonna steal money from all you people who use gas and we're gonna pay it to the government because that's gonna solve the problem right and what's the government gonna do with it do they give it to the climate victims no they don't give it to the climate victims they give it to corporate boondoggles like wind and solar farms and, and green entrepreneurs that are cronies and those guys make out like bandits and they don't do anything for the environment and the victims the supposed victims languish okay so what would a victim look like in this situation well it might be uh an island where sea levels are rising and and it's destroying land and people are having to move or it might look like the desertification uh, of an area or something like that. Um, okay. So now let's say I'm in this community and my property has been destroyed. And I think it's because of CO2 levels that, uh, that are being put out. Well, what I would do is I would take, uh, I would again, use the tort system similar to the smokestacks and the industrial revolution. And I'd say it's the CO2 levels. I'm going to take, uh, let's say that the, there are, I read once, I think it's something like 70 corporations are responsible for like 80% of CO2 emissions. Uh, I'm going to do a class action lawsuit against those 80 corporations. And now I'm going to have to go before a judge and I'm going to have to bring in my experts and I'm going to have to actually prove in a court of law beyond a preponderance of evidence or whatever the standard is that the CO2 levels are have actually caused desertification. The other side's going to get a chance to argue their side and maybe they'll prove that it, no, it's not it has nothing to do with co2 levels it's just a natural cycle that occurs in that region or something like that but what's happening here is that you have scientists uh, arguing out in an actual court where the judge is concerned with justice and actually restoring the victim and it's not done in the court of public opinion with all these propaganda and and like uh, uh, you know yeah propaganda pieces and and different things like that so so climate uh, would be solved through uh, property rights and torts and and a common law system. Fair enough. Sounds logical to me. Yeah. <clears throat>
well, you're actually like I was expecting like some mid answer for some of these, but these are some pretty logical answers. Well, believe me, I've like, had a lot of <laughs> I've, I've had to like, think about this stuff a lot, right? Oh yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, and how can we ensure that there's true competition? Like I couldn't start up an oil company today. So how can we ensure that these companies would not monopolize on their like where they are right now? Right. Well, so so let's first of all look at what causes monopolization, right? And um, again, we're starting with the, that initial question, like how's that going right now under the current system? So under under the current system, um, you know, in the U.S., I think if you pay like two hundred percent of, or like you you get a two hundred percent or four hundred percent return on every lobbying dollar you spend. Uh, lobbying government if you're a megacorp why is that what, what is going on there well um they're creating rules in government and they're they're figuring out ways to point the gun of the state so that these corporations can make more money and that's either like uh pointing guns at, at smaller competition they, they raise the regulatory hurdle or something like that and they'll do it under the auspices of we need to make sure this is done in an equitable way esg or something like that or we need to make sure that uh, the climate is protected or whatever, right? So now you've raised the bar so high that uh, you and I can never hope to start a business and compete uh, with these companies. And so this is how these megacorps kind of get a bigger and bigger market share and how there's less corporation, uh, uh, less competition. Uh, another way that this happens, and and this is, um, this is an underappreciated and overlooked area for a lot of libertarians um, who haven't really looked into the issue. And that is the the realm of intellectual property. Okay. Intellectual property is, uh, is it used to be called more appropriately intellectual monopoly. Okay. And it was a monopoly granted by the, by the government to, to basically crush competition. And so if I come up with an idea um, and, and create a product, no one else can copy that idea and create, manufacture that product. And, and so what it's saying is, Mike, you can't, the, the material you own, the property you own, you can't arrange it in the same pattern that I arranged it in because I thought of it first. And you can't sell it to, you definitely can't sell it to people because I'm entitled to those people's money. Their money belongs to me, not you, and definitely not them, right? They can't choose who to give it to. Um, so it, it creates a, a bunch of violations. So I, I don't want to get into um, like how, you know, I, I could do a whole episode on IP addressing a lot of concerns, but let's just say that that IP is, is a, a huge way that, um, that, companies get huge market shares and monopoly powers um, and, and how it crushes competition. So I just wanted to quickly point out that right now competition is hugely suppressed. And there, there have been some scholarly articles done that estimate that trillions and trillions of dollars of economic um, uh, flourishing have been eliminated because of the IP regime, because of the, the prohibition on creating things on making things, on producing better versions of things and different things like that. Um, so so it is no doubt set humanity back decades, if not a century. It has uh, led to death, uh, unknown death, because think of all the different medications and drugs we could have. If entrepreneurs were free to experiment and try and reformulate things that other people have tried, but tweak them a little bit and do different things. 
just think about how how music is often created by using hooks and different things and remixes and and made even better um so you know it, it's absolutely crushed right now so in order for one of these companies in anarcho-capitalism to gain a monopoly share it would have to find a way to use guns to suppress competition like what Who's going to suppress the competition? How can they get a monopoly? Some people will say, well, okay, they're just going to keep buying up the competition. They're going to get more and more money and no one will be able to compete with that. Well, um, but why, why, you know, so, so what, what happens normally when one company starts doing that is these smaller companies notice, Hey, there's a demand for this. I'm going to raise the price of my sell of my company so I can make a lot of money this guy really wants it this corporation really wants it so this corporation spends all this money on acquiring uh, on buying up its competitors it, it's got a huge a lot of debt or it has to raise the price of its product a lot to cover the cost of acquiring all its competitors right raises its cost now what now we have a market opportunity for an entrepreneur to say hey i can produce that product a lot cheaper and take market share from them so it, it's it, it just doesn't happen in reality that the free market it, it's a, it's a kind of a fallacy of the left that the free market left unregulated creates all these monopolies. No, um, corporatism creates monopolies. Government power creates monopolies. Government itself is a monopoly. And so if you're concerned about monopolies, the first monopoly you want to might want to consider uh, abolishing is the umbrella monopoly, the government that monopolizes that is the umbrella corporation that monopolizes everything, right? Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I guess we're running almost out of time, but oh, we got a questions. Yeah, okay, yep. a bit more time. Um, so the idea of like an anarcho-capitalist party, let's say for this project, yeah. if they were to like win a couple of seats, not the whole government, right? Um, <laughs> would would that not go against their whole like if they were to actually sit in parliament? Would that not go against everything they stand for? Uh, well, <laughs> like, I, I guess we, what would we do? <laughs> it might, I, I don't know. Like, it, it, you know, if you become part of a criminal cartel and your express goal is to, to disband that criminal cartel, it's kind of like being, a an undercover cop or something like that, <laughs> trying to, to like address it. I, I, I don't really see it as some people would say it, it is, um, because just by virtue of being in government, you're a bad guy now and you're, you're a criminal and you're, but the way I look at it is this infrastructure is in place. The system is in place. It's literally beating people up now. And if I can go in there and I can try to, it's a giant fire. Okay. I'm a firefighter. So this is the analogy I like to use. It's an out of control fire. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to go in there and put some water on it. Okay. I'm going into the belly of the beast and I'm trying to put some water. On it. Now it's not likely to be very effective, but I'm trying at least I'm, I'm doing a lot more than some anarcho-capitalist who's sitting in his parents' basement and, uh, you know, doing another like witty meme about the state or something like that. <laughs> Damn you state. Um, I'm actually in the fight. Uh, so I don't think it is. And I also, you know, what about taking, uh, the government money, right? What about taking the, my salary for it? Well, you know, this might be me kind of, Maybe I'm a hypocrite here, but I, you know, I, I told this to actually to Derek Fildebrandt yesterday because he runs the Western Standard, and one of his his things is 
in his mission statement is we won't take a dollar from government money. But now he's finding it really hard to compete <laughs> with his competitors because they all get subsidies from the government. And he actually qualifies for a huge subsidy from the government. He can get 40% of his funding from the government. Like that's a huge amount. And he can actually expand his thing and do more good if he gets that money. And I, I took him aside. I said, look, Derek, uh, that money has been already been stolen. It's sitting there in a big pile in Ottawa. Okay. It's not going back to taxpayers. Who's it going to go to? If it doesn't go to you, is it, are they going to save it for a rainy day and like, you know, do anything that promotes liberty with it? No, they're going to give it to some other socialist or commie that's going to do nothing but bad things with it. So Derek, it's your highest duty to go get that plunder and keep it safe in your own hands and expand liberty with your platform by using the government, the, the, the criminal cartels money against it. And, and that's kind of how I look at uh, an anarcho-capitalist in government they're they're using that plunder in an attempt to stop the plunder um and 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 by not taking it in a sense they are handicapping themselves they're making themselves less effective because now now they're going to spend all their time instead of fighting this system they're going to be spending it trying to fundraise when there's a big pile of money right there and everyone else is taking it who are the bad guys and they're refusing to to take it to do something good with it um, so other bad guys are taking it instead. So I, I honestly, uh, don't see it as a big problem. Other people might, but, but honestly, uh, no anarcho-capitalist is ever going to win a seat. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, the point at which an anarcho-capitalist will win a seat, the state will have become irrelevant anyways, and people will just stop listening to it and, and it'll just wither and die. Like it, it's, why would anyone listen to the state if they're willing to, if people are so convinced by anarcho-capitalism that they're going to elect some, it's like, you know, where, where, where's the, these anarcho-capitalists going to go? I'm going to go to the state where no one's sending their tax money, where no one's even listening to them. It's like, what, what have they got left to do? Nothing, you know? And, and this is kind of the, my point, has always been my point in politics. Like, as a libertarian leader, I never imagined or was delusional enough to think I was going to get a seat. <laughs> uh, I always knew this was an educational enterprise. My, my goal was to make one more libertarian at a time by talking to people, having conversations like this one-on-one -on -one, and, you know, thinking that, hoping that eventually when we hit a tipping point and there's enough people out there uh, spreading the good news, spreading the gospel of liberty and telling people how they sinned and fall short of the glory of Ron Paul, uh, that, <laughs> that eventually they would adopt uh, liberty and, and then they would just stop, stop, feeding the state with their their prayers and their hymns and their money right <laughs> and their tithes or whatever and they would just uh you know go back to living a life of purpose and peace and and you know maybe focus on god a little bit and and <laughs> rather than the state but uh so 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 to me the way we get to that free society isn't political um although i wouldn't mind seeing some some you know i know actually right now there are likely some libertarians and maybe even some anarcho-capitalists in parliament, okay, that are like, I know there's one guy, one conservative guy, I'm trying to remember his name from Edmonton, who was caught wearing a shirt that said taxation is theft on an airplane, okay? Now, that sounds pretty anarchist to me. It sounds pretty libertarian to me. I like that. But of course, he had to go on a big apology tour to keep his job because uh, when people saw that, they were like, so there's undercover libertarians in parliament, I, I suspect right now, who are in the closet, who are very quiet, who are just trying to buy their times. I don't think they're going to be able to do much. I don't think they're going to do as much as, as you or I are doing right now, having this conversation. But you know what? I'm glad they're there and not some socialist or not some 
statist who really believes in government because at least they'll do less harm that way right and they won't be as enthusiastically supporting these bad ideas they know are, are bad and evil so so i, I don't mind that but uh, i think the, the path is to educate people and to and, and maybe it's even uh competing technologies like my buddy who i talked about building a private community in saskatchewan who's going to make the state irrelevant to him through his his solution his entrepreneurial solution and then we have bitcoin and we have disruptive technologies like uber that that break apart the car taxi cartels and all you know so there's all sorts of disruptive solutions that come out i think that that persuasion and these disruptive technologies and entrepreneurship are more likely to get us to the so-called promised land than uh, political action or running for office will, or, or like getting elected to office, put it that way. Fair enough. Fair enough. And these, like, uh, like these statists, communists, socialists, even conservatives, uh, liberals, um, they're always, they're, they will always be there. There are always people yeah. that would disagree with an anarcho-capitalist society. Sure. Would these people start political parties within the NCAP state? Well, I mean, what what, what what we would call those political parties are criminal cartels, right? They're they're engaged in criminal conspiracy to harm people, to steal from them and plunder them. So that would be dealt with through the justice system, right? It might not be like complete expulsion or it certainly probably wouldn't be imprisonment or something, but it would certainly be, look, you could need to answer for this and you need to, uh, you, you need to convince the community here that, um, that you're not the threat, uh, the threat to the, them you think they are, because all the evidence is showing that you are. You're literally conspiring to rob them and impose uh, rule on them. I mean, hey, Gary, we went through this like a hundred years ago, and like slavery is immoral. Didn't you get the memo? We we don't enslave people anymore. And you know, Gary, you're going to have to, you know, whatever. <laughs> Do your penance here, and if you want to earn the community's trust again. So, so yeah, it would unlikely, yeah, the criminal conspiracy would be a crime, and and it probably wouldn't happen. Fair enough. All right, sounds like everything kind of like bases back on the idea of decentralization. Yeah, and multiple people watching each other and keeping each other in check. Yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Um. So then, I guess one final question. Um. My assignment. Um, asked me to pick a, a party leader. Would okay. you want to be that party leader? Like me, uh, have you write you down as party leader for? Uh... I mean, sure, you could write me down as party okay. leader. Okay. Look, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not exactly uh, excited about the prospect of getting out there again and doing all the things you have to do as party leader. Trying to trying to organize a bunch of anarchists and libertarians is a lot like herding cats. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, it can be done. You know, it can be done. They're, they're a very disagreeable lot, though. They tend to focus on all the minor differences that, that we all seem to have. Um, but if, you know, I, I I was able to lead the party to its most successful year in, in its 40-year history in 2015. And that was because I uh, provided a lot of value. So the way I heard cats on the farm is I put down a warm saucer of milk, something that they value. And then they organize around it and they lap it up, right? So I had to spend a lot of time, energy, effort, conversations to um, make the value proposition and to provide something of value to people that they wanted to get behind. And the amount of work and energy that that took, I'm not sure I, I necessarily have that in me again, but for the purposes of this assignment, I'll say yes. I'll lead your <laughs> okay. capitalist party. Awesome. <laughs> Thank All you right. so much. No All problem. Right.
right. That's awesome. about it, I guess. That's Maybe. it. Awesome. Did I um, meet your needs? For here. sure. Awesome. For sure. Okay. Yeah, my whole met, like ANCAP manifesto, I guess. <laughs> right, right. Yes. And I, I'll, uh, I'll try to send you some uh, resources, some books or something so you can read about stuff awesome. more in depth, but, um, you know, hopefully I answered some of your questions and maybe, sure. uh, influenced you a little bit. Uh, yeah. and maybe, maybe it won't take you six months. Like it took me <laughs> to overcome some of these, uh, uh, intellectual and emotional hurdles, but, uh, good luck with it. I hope yeah. you, hope you do well on your project. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me here. No problem. Thanks, it. Mike. Well, you, you saved my ass because uh, <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to have a podcast for Monday, but now I do. Oh, so, awesome. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.